Welcome to Amici, news and insight from the New York courts. For this Pride Month version of Diversity Dialogues, we are fortunate to have not one, but two pioneering judges as guests. The Honorable Anthony Canatero of New York's highest court, the Court of Appeals, and Justice Joanne Winslow of the Appellate Division Fourth Department. Together, the judges co-chair the Richard C. Fela LGBTQ Commission of the New York Courts. Judge Canatero, only the second openly LGBTQ judge on the High Court, is, in addition to celebrating Pride Month, celebrating his one-year anniversary in the Court of Appeals. Justice Winslow just marked her fifth anniversary in the Appellate Division Fourth Department. Recently, because the Court of Appeals was shorthanded, the Court brought in Justice Winslow to join the panel and sit on a case argued April 19th. That day marked the first time ever when two openly LGBTQ judges sat together in the state's highest court. It was also the day when the portrait of the late Paul Feynman, the first openly gay judge in the Court of Appeals, was unveiled. Judges, thank you for joining me. Justice Winslow, you were admitted in 1987. Judge Canatero, you came a little bit later in 1997. But both of you came at age, came of age at a time when being gay or lesbian was viewed as shameful or deviant, certainly not prideful. So I'd like to ask each of you when you came to terms with your own sexuality and how easy or difficult that was. Let's start with you, Justice Winslow. All right. Well, I would say I fully realized uh, who my authentic self was when I was uh, 19 years old. Wow. And it was many years later when I felt safe enough to live my life as my authentic self fully. Uh, and it didn't happen all at once. It sort of happened in pieces. Uh, the first major piece occurred back in 1993 when I went to the March on Washington. And it was really very affirming to be in the midst of, I think the estimated size of the crowd was as high as 700,000 people who were either LGBTQ persons or allies. And then when I came back and returned to work, I, um, I decided that sort of gave me the impetus to begin to open up more. And, and uh, so the people that I most closely trusted, I was at the DA's office at the time, the people that I most closely trusted and had lunch with on a regular basis, uh, you know, I started to uh, open up and be my, my full self with them. And uh, it wasn't really until, oh, several years later that I was open about my identity fully at the DA's office. Uh, and that was where I had spent my first 22 years. So it was probably a good 10 or 12 years in before, before I was my authentic self at the DA's office. But 19... Then when I ran for election in 2008, I, I didn't try to hide my sexual identity, but I also didn't put it on my palm cards. <laughs> that I handed out. So, uh, I'm sure. And then once I took the bench, it became much easier to be fully my authentic self and not really have to worry about it. What Thanks was to the great state of New York. What was life like before you became 19, before you came to terms with things? <clears throat> uh, you know, it, it was really a lot of questioning, a lot of, um, you know, I had had some experience that made me wonder what my direction would be. Uh, and it was tough because, as you said, you know, back in those days, you know, it was considered uh, devious. It was considered even illegal in some places. And, you know, people could get fired from their jobs, evicted from their homes. I mean, just horrible things could happen. But, uh, you know, I, I came to realize that it was who I was. And mm. 
to me that that meant I had to be who I was. I just had to tread carefully in the very early years. That's too bad you had to tread carefully. Judge Canatero, what's what's your what's your story? Um, so I am a, a child of the '70s and a, and a teenager of the '80s. And while I always knew I was uh, gay. Uh, from a, from a fairly early age, my you know my my entry into adulthood uh, sort of coincided with the AIDS epidemic, and um, my journey was such that uh, rather than deny it or hide it, at least to myself, um, I embraced uh, my identity and used the activism that was going on around AIDS at the time to sort of uh, justify my, my self-identification as a gay person because I was in New York City, uh, you know, which was kind of the epicenter of, of AIDS advocacy in the early days. I went to ACT UP meetings and, and uh, just got really involved with the community. Uh, so uh, there was always a public-facing aspect of my identity uh, from from the very earliest uh, days uh, that that coincided with my sexual identity. But um, like Judge Winslow, uh, my coming out process was staggered. I think the way it was for so many of us. I, I was out to friends in the beginning and then out to friends in certain family um, uh, later on. And of course, like so many of us, my parents were the very last to be formally informed. Uh, and and that, that didn't happen until uh, quite late in the game. I was already admitted to the bar uh, when that happened. Um, but I, I don't think it came as much of a shock to them by that point because I was at least 30 years old when I came out to my parents. Um, but uh, unlike Judge Winslow, and again, this might be geographic as well as something having to do with the, with the changing times, when I ran for my first judgeship in 2011, I was aggressively out and proud. Uh, my, the, the district I ran in was actually... Chelsea and Hell's Kitchen. Uh, so it was not just tolerated, it was actively embraced by the community that I was running as uh, the only LGBTQ candidate in, in, the, uh, in the race that I had. Um, so um, as far as my public life, professional life is concerned, uh, I've always been uh, very much uh, identified with this aspect of, of who I am. You know, what's interesting to me is you basically are 10 years apart, but your stories are, are quite a bit different. And let me ask you, honestly, when you were in high school, college, law school, did you really see the day coming when same-sex marriage was not only constitutionally protected in this country, but widely accepted? Well, I'm older, so I'll go first. <laughs> I absolutely did not expect to have the right to marry in my lifetime. In fact, I attended the wedding of the last boy that I dated and uh, went with my mother. 
and she and unfortunately the uh, the groom um, saw me weeping uh, at during the course of the wedding and they both thought it was because I wasn't the bride and that really had nothing at all to do with it the reason I was weepy was because as I watched the the wedding and the ceremony and you know the re- reception all I kept thinking about was how I would never have one of these you know I would never get to do this and it was very distressing to me I certainly never thought that my ability to get married would be constitutionally protected or widely accepted uh, but I'll disclose to you that um, Lynn and I are getting married in August congratulations so. <laughs> congratulations <laughs> Now, you, you were both attorneys well into your career in, in 2006 when the Court of Appeals, where you now sit, Judge Canatero, upheld the ban on gay marriage <laughs> over a very powerful dissent by Chief Judge Kay. What was your feeling when the court did that? Um, that, was, that was a disappointment, uh, obviously. Uh, it would have been extraordinary for the community uh, and for anyone who uh, works in the law or, or works as a judge to see to see New York's highest court take the lead um, I, I understand and I even understand more so now that I'm at the court the many dynamics that go into uh, decision making and and I, I think I have a better understanding of why that court uh, could not at that time uh, make make a holding uh, or at least a, a constitutionally based holding that affirmed uh, a lesbian or gay couple's right to marry. Um, I, I was actually working at the court uh, around the beginning of, of the millennium in, you know, in 2000 through 2003 or so, uh, when a line of cases, uh, a very odious line of cases involving um, non-adoptive, non-biologically related parents, uh, their rights to have custody and or visitation with their children was going through. We, we used to call it the Alice and D line of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, the, the court had been presented with multiple opportunities since the time Allison D. was decided to overrule their holding. Um, and, you know, uh, it's there are a lot of a lot of factors that go into the decision, not just what what the holding of the court is going to be, but also whether to grant leave on a particular issue or not. And one of the factors always has to be, well, is it time to grant leave? And in other words, you don't want to take the risk that you can get an even worse uh, holding out of, out of the court of last resort by, ta- by granting leave on something too early um, and where the, where the community at large is not ready or the individual judges of the court are not yet ready to, to take that next step in the evolution of the law. So, um, you know, while it was very personally disappointing for me to see uh, an issue that was of such great importance to the LGBTQ community not get uh, reviewed and possibly reversed from a decision which I think we all know 
has since been reversed. Um, uh, I learned a lot about the way the law works, especially at, at this level. Um, everything, it's all in the timing. And you have to you have to bring the cases at the right time when the community is ready and when the court is ready. So I understand Rodriguez in its context. Um, but of course, it would have been nice to see it go a different way. That's interesting. I often wonder if you took the you, you pick them nine best Supreme Court judges in history and put them on the Supreme Court in 1944 and see where they come up with them Brown v. Board of Education. Uh-huh. Yep. I don't know that we were there yet. Now we've come a long way. Some of that some of the change has been through the democratic political legislative branches. Some of it's been spread through the courts. So how have the courts been an agent for change? Well, I think that the courts and the law have been an agent for change by making the law reflect that society has changed. Sometimes the law takes a while to catch up with society. Um, but, you know, you look at cases over the years. You look at Lawrence versus Texas, you know, uh, criminalizing uh, the, the Kansas law, criminalizing gay or lesbian sex was unconstitutional. And, and finding that there was a constitutional liberty and privacy that was consistent with due process, that was you know, 2003, and that was just three years before the case we just spoke of. Then, you know, United States versus Windsor, you know, that was um, in 2013, and that, you know, basically overturned the DOMA. And then Obergefell and Hodges versus Hodges in 2015. That, that certainly uh, made my earlier belief wrong, which I was very happy about, and... Uh, you know, that was really life-changing for a lot of people, you know, clearly in the community. And and I think, again, it reflected where society already was. That kind of uh, goes back to what Judge Canatero said about the law being a, uh, a progression. One yes. step leads to the next, and leads to the next, and leads to the next. Rather, rather, than, uh, rather than big leaps, maybe they're... Uh, uh, more often baby steps on major constitutional issues. Would you agree with that? I do. Um, uh, you know, I, I think um, we, <laughs> progressive is, a, is a, such a loaded word uh, right now because, uh, you know, it's been, it's been adopted by a particular political movement, but I think, you know, at its core, progressive uh, just speaks to the evolutionary nature of societies uh, like and and our society, American society, New York, uh, it has been steadily progressing through its history to what we all hope is a better and and uh, more equal appreciation of all of its members and all the all the developments in the law that Judge Winslow spoke about. I would hope just reflects the health of our democracy and the evolution of our society uh, towards uh, a better understanding. I mean, um, I'm, I'm going to misquote Martin Luther King now, but he, he said, what is it, the arc, uh, the, the, the arc of the moral universe uh, bends towards justice. I, I, just, I just ruined his quote, but um, he was right that in time, uh, in a healthy community, in a healthy society, uh, 
we hope that all of us uh, are appreciated and understood and and have our, our rightful place among our, our peers. I'd like to ask each of you what led you to uh, the study, the practice of law. Well, for, for me, uh, it was really two things. One, my dad had always wanted to be a lawyer and um, he was in college in 1929 when the uh, stock market crashed and his aunt who had raised him, his parents were in the circus. My grandparents were in the circus and uh, they didn't want him raised in the circus. So he was raised by an aunt who was wealthy by, you know, by the times definition. And uh, she lost all of her money in the stock market crash. And so he had to leave college and go home and go to work and take care of her as she had done for him all those years. And he never got back to law school. And so that was a dream he never realized. And we sort of knew that growing up. And, and I think that partially made it appealing to us to be able to, you know, do something that he found important that he wanted to achieve and never got to. And then I think also just, you know, it was an outcropping really of what my experience had been growing up as, you know, a gay woman in upstate New York in the seventies, you know, in the sixties, um, you know, fairness and equality were, you know, like the guiding principle of my life. And I really felt as though going into the law would allow me to um, live that, not just believe in it, but live it. And so that was why I went. Was um, When you were at Springfield uh, College, was law something in the front or the back of your mind? It was, yeah, it was actually part of my long-range plan. I, I was a... Uh, secondary education, history, social studies major. I was going to, my plan was to teach in a high school for a number of years and then go to law school after I, you know, had some real life experience in, in a high school. But when I got out in uh, 1981, there were no uh, tenure track positions available and uh, law school tuition just kept mounting and mounting and mounting. And so I decided I had to, uh, after two years, I decided it was time to go. Okay. Judge Canatero, why did, why did you become a lawyer? Um, well, I won't say that it's been my, my, uh, that it was my goal to become a lawyer throughout my entire life and that I conceived of it when I was just a little boy. Um, I, I'm, I'm the child of immigrants. Um, uh, my parents both came to this country from Italy and they were not, they were, they were old enough when they came here that they weren't formally educated in American schools. Um, so, although my mother did uh, subsequently um, go get a, a GED and go to college, and she actually became a teacher, but, but when they first got here, uh, they they were looking for more opportunities for their children and for their families. So it was very important to them that I find a, a good, solid career, uh, notwithstanding my desire as a young gay man to, you know, I don't know, become an actor or, or do something, something more creative uh, with my life. Um, and I was a classics major in college. And by the time I had gotten my degree, I would have been very content with a life just, you know, studying um, Aeschylus and, and, you know, uh, reading Greek and Latin texts. But um, 
again, my, it was very important to my parents even then that I pursue something that they thought would keep me in good stead uh, throughout my professional life. And at that point, um, I knew enough about the law to understand that you could do a lot of things with a law degree uh, and and that maybe I could bring my love for whatever it was my my passion was at the time to bear in uh, somehow through the law. That turned out obviously not to be the case because being a judge has very little to do with studying Latin or Greek, although you know I know what habeas corpus means better than most people, I suppose. but um, it, it, it didn't really work out that way, but that's not to say that I didn't find something I love. And uh, I'm a testament to the uh, to the idea that you should be open to uh, whatever life brings you, because looking back on my career in the law now and my time in the judiciary, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. Let me segue into the, uh, the family commission, which you two co-chair. In 2016, I believe it was, uh, Chief Judge DeFiori created the first court-based commission in the nation dedicated to addressing issues facing the LGBTQ community. What was the significance of that action by the Chief Judge at that time? Well, I, I think it was uh, of great significance. The mere fact that it was the first in the nation shows the Chief Judge's commitment to equality and fairness and to her ability to be ahead of the curve and be able to provide a model for the entire nation. Uh, but on a practical level, um, you know, she had the vision to establish a commission that works to see that all users of the courts, be they judges, clerks, court officers, attorneys, litigants, witnesses, jurors, everybody who walks through the doors of the courthouse for any reason are treated with dignity and respect and equality and that they're not made to feel like they're less than or that their difference is a negative factor and I, you know to me that's that's huge and I'm very appreciative that she did so. Now Justice Canatero, um, Justice Winslow just said that uh, Judge uh, DeFiori was ahead of the curve. Well that curve was in 2016. Should that curve, should that curve have been a whole lot, come a lot, whole lot sooner? Um, I think what what Judge DeFiori, I don't think the curve was not there prior to the chief's judge, prior to the chief judge's uh, ascendancy to her current position. I think what the chief judge has done time and time again uh, with the Fela Commission, um, with with her recent efforts uh, in equal justice in the courts and, and making it. Uh, not just a priority, but uh, you know, a, a sort of uh, top-level urgency sort of mandate for the court is uh, expressed her her innermost sense that in order for the courts to operate the way they should, in order to to deliver justice equally to all members of our community. The, the courts have to be all those things that Judge Winslow was just saying. They have to be fair. They have to be equal. They have to be respectful of all its members. And I just think that our current chief judge recognizes that truth so fundamentally that um, she cannot abide any <clears throat> inequality existing 
in in our court system. And we're just so lucky to have someone who takes those issues seriously because in a big, busy court system like ours, it's just very easy to get distracted with the mundane day-to-day frustrations of what we do and the sheer volume of work that we have to do it do uh, do uh, and it's it's essential and it's um, it's to her credit that she sort of looks past all of that and says yes but in order to do that volume of work the way it needs to be done and with excellence, which was her original initiative, um, we have to we have to provide a fair and and safe space for everyone to come and bring their disputes and expect and 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 respect the 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 process that they're involved in. So um, I appreciate her greatly. And I'm sure she appreciates you as well. Um, now, you, you are both appellate judges, so I'd like to ask you, um, what difference does it make, or does it make any difference to have an LGBTQ judge on the court? Is it just a matter of uh, uh, pride, um, or do judges of different backgrounds bring different perspectives to cases? Uh, well, I think inclusion is very important. I, I don't think it's just a matter of pride. Certainly, it's, you those of us who are there are prideful that we're there and are, are happy to be there. Uh, but it's for the same reason it's important to see, you know, women judges or judges that are racially and ethnically diverse. It, it's important to recognize and accept differences. And it's important. It helps make the court users feel welcome when they see people like them in a courtroom and in a, in a, in a role such as a judge fulfills in a courtroom, you know, like I said earlier, not that long ago, LGBTQ persons were evicted from their homes because they were gay or banned from serving in the military or denied access to, you know, their partners in hospitals, things like that. So, um, you know, I do think it's very important. And we do bring a different perspective, as any judge brings a different perspective, because of their own life experiences. Yeah, I, I second all of that. Uh, it, it, I, I don't think... Um, it's uh, essential. Well, let's put it this way. I, I completely agree with Judge Winslow's statement that we're all different. We all bring unique experiences. And it's not so much that we belong to a particular category that, that makes the judiciary better. But I do believe very much so that part of the success of the courts has to do with the uh, trust that is placed in them by the community. And it is easier to have trust of the entire community when the communities can look at the court and see themselves in it. And that's not an argument for why there should be LGBTQ judges on the bench. That's an argument for why there should be all different kinds of judges on the bench. People from every social, uh, ethnic, religious background possible. Because once we're in, we're all remarkably similar. We're all trying to do the same thing. We're trying to deliver justice through the uh, American legal system. And we, we all, we're all well-educated and we understand how that works. But how we approach it is different. And certainly how the public views us uh, is greatly changed when there are uh, different members of the community on the bench. And I just want to say, if there's anybody listening to this podcast, 
uh, who's thinking about a career in the judiciary. We need a trans judge on in the New York state courts. We need a transgender judge in the New York state courts for that very reason. We, uh, we don't we don't have one. We don't have one that I know of. Hmm. Um, and, um, you know, it, it would be wonderful for that community to see one of their members on the bench. Hmm. I and, concur. Well said, Judge Kamatari. And finally, on April 19th, a, a historic day, how, how did you each feel when you sat there together in the highest court in the state on the day that the portrait of Judge Feynman was unveiled? Did you look it over each other and wink or smile? or how, how, what, what was it like up there that day? You gave the speech. <laughs> You're definitely taking this one first. <laughs> well, you know, I was uh, part of the first all-woman panel here at the uh, Fourth Department, and it was great to have that happen. We took a note of it at the time. We we didn't ahead of time recognize it, you know, and but at at the at the moment that it happened, or the morning that it was going to happen, we we were aware of it, and we made note of it. But then once we went into court, and you know, the work kicked in, it was. It was a fleeting moment, really, and, and uh, we did get asked about it a few times afterwards, but, but it still was important. Um, and April 19th was, was similar but bigger for me. Uh, it certainly was a first. It was a milestone in uh, you know, LGBTQ legal history, I suppose. Uh, but for me, it had a dual effect of being the pinnacle of my entire career, being able to sit on a case at the Court of Appeals that day, um, it was special because of the unveiling of the Judge Feynman portrait uh, and all that he had contributed to the legal profession and in particular to his position at the Court of Appeals. And um, so it, on many levels, it was a very, very special day, and I felt very fortunate to be a part of that day. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, I feel similarly. I, I filled Judge Feynman's vacancy, so... Judge Feynman's legacy and his his symbolic meaning, both to the courts and and to the LGBTQ community, is uh, sometimes a weight that I carry with me because mm -hmm. it's just a lot to live up to. Uh, but Paul was an amazingly gracious and kind person, in addition to being uh, intelligent and hardworking and just a, a fantastic judge and. A good friend of his uh, expressed to me once uh, when I when I mentioned that, that sometimes I I, I fear uh, the massiveness of his legacy uh, said to me that I should think of think of Paul as sort of being on my shoulder and guiding me and that makes it all much better. So to see his smiling face in that beautiful portrait that was unveiled on April nineteenth. I don't have to imagine Paul over my shoulder helping me. I just have to look over onto the wall next to where I sit, and I can see Paul just above my shoulder smiling down on me. So that's great. And uh, as to the other thing that happened on April 19th, I will say that like, like when Judge Winslow sat at the fourth department for the first all-female panel, it didn't occur to me on the morning of April 19th or any time before that that we were going to have two openly gay judges sitting on the New York State Court of Appeals for the first time in history. I just woke up and thought, oh, my friend Joanne is going to be here today. <laughs> um, so um, 
it's great, I guess, that that we we as a culture have come to a point where even for me that that momentous occasion didn't register until I saw us both together in the courtroom. Um, so it's it was great having her there, and I certainly look forward uh, to the next full-time member of the community sitting on the bench with me. <laughs> Judge Kandatero and Justice Winslow, thank you for your time and your service, and happy Pride Month. Happy Pride. Happy Thanks. Pride.